Good evening, church. As um, Matt indicated, we're looking at Psalm 2 today. I'll give you a second or two to find Psalm 2. Psalms is easy to find if you uh, go like that and go in the middle of your Bible. Um, you'll either hit Psalms or Proverbs and then you just go slightly to the left to get to Psalm 1. Two, Psalm 2, sorry. Psalm 1 is good too. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let's break their chains and throw off their shackles. The one enthroned in, <coughs> the one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. <coughs> I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I'll make the, the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. <coughs> Therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he'll be angry and your way will lead to your destruction for his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. Well, uh, good evening, everyone. Psalm 2. Uh, why are we doing Psalm 2? Uh, following Easter, we had a one-week break before we launch into our series, two new series in the next week. Being a long weekend as well, uh, being an Anzac weekend, we thought we'd just uh, look at a one-off sermon, uh, which will speak to us about something really significant. And as I was praying about that, God kept taking me to Psalm 2, because it has some really important things to say in light of Anzac Day, in light of the uh, tensions in the world, in light of the finished work of Jesus on the cross and his resurrection. And, and the question I want to ask, and I think Psalm 2 asks us, is who rules the world? You know, we talked about already about conflicts in the world, uh, World War I, Gallipoli, World War II, Vietnam, Korea, and so on, all the way to Ukraine. And you wonder who's in control. But there's another sense in which we ask the question, who rules the world? Because the church, Christ church, suffers persecution around the globe. Christians are killed, they're imprisoned, they're tortured. There are churches that have been torched to the ground, Christian villages attacked, Christian beliefs mocked. And so we ask the question, who rules this world? Psalm 2 answers the question. And that's a great thing. It's nice to go to the Bible and see that it answers our question for us. And it tells us why the righteous, those who trust in God, can find great confidence in God. So in a quick summary, let me ask these questions and answer very quickly. It says, in answer to the question of who rules the world, the answer is God does. Who is in control of world history? God is. How does he respond to rebellion against him? He sends his son to be the saviour and the one who crushes the rebellion. And we saw it played out at the Easter events. What will be the ultimate destiny of those who reject him? Destruction. 
Who can you trust in this life? The God who rules. What is our only hope? Submission to God and his king. This is what Psalm 2 is going to tell us tonight. Now, Psalm 2, if you weren't aware, is known as a royal psalm. It defines the status and the role of the Davidic kings reigning from Zion, which is God's holy mountain in Jerusalem. As well as being a royal psalm, it is a coronation psalm. It's a psalm that's used at the accession of the king when a king is installed in their place as king, and often at the annual celebration of his accession. Hey, it's the anniversary, first anniversary of the king, and they uh, read this psalm out. It focuses on the whole idea that opposition to God is foolishness. It is even laughable, and we'll see that in the text, because God is in his world, and he's established his king as his representative. And God is saying, don't mess with my king. When you mess with my king, you mess with me, and I put you in great danger. And the psalm will find its fuller meaning in Jesus, God's king in the kingdom of God. See, in the Old Testament, the, the king is an anointed one set apart by God, but the ultimate anointed one is Christ the Messiah. And you'll see that this psalm is quoted a number of times in reference to Jesus. So what is happening at the beginning? Number one, we have people rebelling against God and his king. Now, when a uh, king dies, you get prepared for the installation or the accession of the new king. The Vedic kings, they had power and authority from God, and God has established them. They will be one king followed by another. But you see, when the king has died, if you are under that king, if you're another nation that has to submit to that nation, that king, this is your chance to rebel. This is your chance to say, the king's dead, the king's dead, quick, get the armies together. Let's see if we can get rid of these guys. Let's see if we can rebel and we can get our own freedom, do our own thing. It's their chance. The king is dead. Let's break free from the king. And that's why they say, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord. Notice who they're rebelling against, the Lord, Yahweh, and his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. They're conspiring, they're talking, they're gathering together, they're plotting you can see the secret meetings in the basement of various houses and various palaces. There they are, they're gathering. The conversation taking place. These days, you know, they'd be on their phones everywhere, on their computers. What are we going to do? Who's going to take down who? How do we rebel? How do we take out the new king before he's installed? How do we get our freedom? How do we do what we want? They rise up. They take their stand. They say, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. The chains and shackles are normally, you know, imagine the picture in the war situation, that uh, you put chains around someone's feet and uh, legs so you show that they are under your control. And they're saying, we want to break from the control that this nation Israel has over us. But notice they rebel against the Lord Yahweh and his anointed one. The anointed one is a royal title derived from the fact that the king on his coronation is anointed. He's set apart and often anointed with oil to say, this is now our king. It symbolizes that they're set apart for a service, for a specific job. And it's uh, that word from which we get the English title Messiah, derived from the Hebrew. The anointed one is the Messiah, and you see the link to Jesus already here. And in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 4, they apply this text, verses 1 to 3, directly to what happened to Jesus. 
You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and his anointed one. If we could get the next text up, that would be great. Thanks. Um, and then it says, and then having quoted uh, Psalm 2, then he says in verse 27, Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Notice he's the anointed one again. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. This passage, written by Luke, shows that the cross itself has been predicted in Psalm 2. That in the future, Christ will fulfill this psalm. Um, and we see that the, the kings and the rulers, uh, Herod and Pilate, the nations and the peoples are the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. They are united against God's anointed one, or Jesus Christ. But I want you to note, even in people's opposition to God, to remember God's quiet sovereignty. Remember God's quiet sovereignty. That God is at work, even in people's opposition to God, God is still at work to fulfill his purposes. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So the fact that they arrested Jesus, they beat Jesus, they nailed him to a cross that we have symbolically here, and he died, was not an accident of history. God was still in control. God still ruled the world, and God allowed that evil to take place so we could be saved from our sins and our failures. Now, I think it's important to remember, when you don't see how God is at work, you think, God, Ukraine and Russia, what in the world's going on there? God, Hitler, what in the world's going on there? God, Rwanda, massacres. God, what in the world's going on? That God is quietly in his sovereign plan fulfilling his purposes, despite the sinfulness of men and women and their actions. And friends, there are rebels everywhere today, aren't there? People who will say, we don't believe in God, we will not have Jesus as our king. Most of your family and friends will say, we will not have Jesus as our king. We have rebelled against God, we do our own thing. You know, uh, not only did you do the National Church Life Survey, you did a census last year. And the census results will tell you that less and less Australians will identify with being Christians. Go back 20 or 30 years, you'd have 80, 90% of Australians would at least tick the box, we're Christians, right? They weren't Christians, most of them, because you know that most people in Australia were not even Christians back then. They were Christians in name back then. They weren't born again evangelical believers. They didn't have a relationship with Jesus, but they were willing to tick the box Christian. I think you'll find in the next census results that the name or people identify as Christians will be under 50%. The others are now saying, not only are we not, we're not willing to tick the box any longer, we're willing to say we are atheists, we're agnostics, and we follow Star Wars or whatever else you can vote on, on those papers. Right? Whatever else people make up. They are saying we will not have Jesus as our king. We see it in Buddhist nations, Muslim nations, communist China. We see it in secular Western nations like Australia. But God is still at work. You'll still see it at university. You'll see it at school. But God is quietly at work. I was reading a book called 2020 Vision. It was written in 2005 and telling the story of God's mission in the world, what was happening around the world. And uh, let me just give you three illustrations. It says, in 1950, when China closed to foreign missionaries, there were about one million Protestant Christians in the country. In 2020, there were about 116 million. 
1950, China said, we'll get rid of all the missionaries. We don't want our people to become Christian. We'll get rid of all of them. They sent them all home. It was closed. Thinking, they thought that that was going to stop God's work, right? And God continued to work in China. And there's a house church movement in China. People getting converted in China. People getting, uh, millions of people being converted in China. Or well, take Korea, for example. 100 years ago, Korea was unreached. It was said to be impenetrable by the gospel. They were not interested. They wouldn't believe the gospel. Today, one-third of the entire population of Korea claims to be Christians. God quietly doing his work powerfully by his spirit. Or well, take Iran. In 1979, there was the, the Islamic Revolution which took Iran backwards in multiple ways, a religious revolution. Something like 300 believers back then. Now close to 750,000 believers in Iran. And God has continued to grow the church in Iran, not only in Iran, but now throughout the nations of the earth where Iranian people have moved to. Now Iranian Christian churches in Australia themselves. God is at work. People say we will not have God. We will kill Jesus. And God says, even in the killing of Jesus, I bring salvation to the world. God is in control. But secondly, what's God's response to the rebellious plans? They have their plans. What's God's response? The one, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. Come on, God. The Lord scoffs at them. What do you think you're doing? You're rebelling against the one who's sitting in heaven. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion my holy mountain. Where is God? Enthroned in heaven. It's a picture that he is on a throne, ruling and controlling the world. He is king over all. It says, it is arrogance, it is stupid, it is foolish to seek to rebel against me. And he will come in his wrath and in his judgments. It's a bit like this. Uh, you'd be aware that I've had a few daughters over the years. And... Um, and I remember when they were little, so say they were two years of age, and I won't name any of them, I just, one of my daughters was two, so I don't get in trouble from anyone. And uh, you know when they're, when they're little, and you may have seen this, and uh, they want to be disobedient for a moment, maybe they're one and a half, how old are these kids here? Uh, maybe a little bit younger than two, and they want to do the wrong thing, and you pick them up, right? As a parent, you're stronger than them. And they say, oh, I'm going to do the run away from you. And you say, no, you're not. Oh, yes, I am. And they try to hit you and take off your glasses. And you're holding on to them. They're trying to get away from you, thinking they can escape you. But you're more powerful. You rule in this family. Or well, sort of rule. <laughs> sort of rule. <laughs> and you won't let them get away. And that's sort of the picture. God says, he looks down and says, what in the world do you think you're doing? Do you not know who I am? the creator, the saviour, the sustainer of the world, and you think you can rebel against me. And he terrifies them in his wrath by installing his king. He says, I place my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And uh, Zion uh, refers to the city of David, the temple hill in Jerusalem, and of the whole city of Jerusalem, because this is the city where God reigns through his king. He said, I put my king in. Stop rebelling. I'm in control. My king is safe. And thirdly, uh, God's decree, verse 7 to 9, I will proclaim the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son, today I have become your father. These words are probably read by the king. So in this service of installation and accession, uh, the king would read it. Because the decree is a document that's given to the king during the coronation ceremony. It's a personal covenant document renewing God's covenant commitment to the dynasty of David. 
In 2 Samuel, God has said to King David that his line would continue to be the royal line. I will be his father and he will be my son. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And so at the accession of the king, a Davidic king, it will be a reaffirmation of that covenant that God has made. And the king is adopted as God's son, just as Israel had been adopted, say, as his firstborn son in Exodus 4.22. And uh, the adoption presumably took place on the day of the king's accession. God makes him king and says, now you're my son. That's symbolic of relationship between God and the king. Now, some of the kings in that period of time, uh, the ancient Near East, the people who were kings, they thought that they were gods. This does not imply deity. He's not saying that the king is God, but he's simply a child or a son of God in this situation. But the messianic significance, this is important for us, of verse 7, is found in the fact that Jesus too is the son of God, but with a difference. Jesus is the son by nature, not by adoption. And Jesus fulfills verse 7, giving it a fuller meaning uh, with his own coming. So Jesus is God's king. He comes in the royal line of David. He brings in an everlasting kingdom. And his uniqueness as son of God is evidenced in a number of places, or many places, in fact, in the New Testament. Uh, Let me give you two examples. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus is saying to his father, speaks in intimate terms with his father, Father, I had glory with you before. I came to the earth to fulfill your mission. I'm now, please give me the glory that I had with you beforehand. I'm coming back home, Dad. Right? Oh, John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word. The Word's a reference to Jesus. The Word was with God. And the Word was God. So he's talking about his divinity, his deity here. He was with God in the beginning. And those words, you are my son... I quoted and paraphrased a number of times. You remember at Jesus' baptism, God speaks, this is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. At his transfiguration, well, this is up in the mountain, Jesus becomes uh, glowingly white and shining and uh, he, he is transfigured, he's transformed with Moses and Elijah. This is my son, says God, whom I love, with him I am well pleased, listen to him. So you see that God has a special relationship, God the Father with his son Jesus here, in a unique way, his king. Uh, with reference to his resurrection, Acts 13, 33, Psalm 2, 7 is quoted, this very verse is quoted there. Paul writes in Romans 1, 4, that it is above all Jesus' resurrection from the dead, which publicly declares that he is king, and that he is the son of God. This is what it says, through the spirit of holiness was declared with power, to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So if you didn't believe that Jesus Christ was God's Son, if you weren't sure about him being the Son of the living God, if you weren't sure that he came from heaven to earth, was going back to heaven, then the resurrection is the evidence that he is truly that Son of God. But also I need to point out here that Jesus is also the suffering servant. You won't see that in Psalm 2. So why do I raise it now? Because one of the difficulties with the people in Jesus' times, they didn't realize that there was the royal king and the suffering servant. You know the song we sing, the lion and the lamb? The lion of Judah is a symbol of his kingship. The lamb is a symbol of his sacrificial death. The lion and the lamb together. And so 
Psalm 2 talks about his royal power as king, but we need to remember that he's the suffering servant. And the establishment of the kingdom of God by Jesus marks a radically new concept of royal power from that depicted in the coronation of the Davidic king. And that's why the Jews couldn't cope with it. When Jesus kept talking about dying and they kept saying, Jesus, when are you going to take over? When are you going to kick out the Romans? When are you going to set up God's kingdom on earth? They didn't understand that the kingdom was coming in two steps. It was coming with Jesus, firstly, through his death and resurrection. He inaugurates a kingdom, but there's still a second stage when he returns from heaven. And the new kingdom, someone has said, was established in the receipt of violence and death, violence against Jesus, but the climax of Jesus' coronation lay in his conquest of death through resurrection. Jesus is not merely a human king. He is more than human in his sonship, and he is higher than the angels, Hebrews says. So what then? In verse 8 he says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. Missionary work is needed. If he is king, if he is lord over all, and he calls people to submit to him, then God's desire is that the nations would be the inheritance of the king. And for us, this side of the resurrection, and I wish I could have had an empty tomb over here somewhere. Can someone build an empty tomb for next week? <laughs> I don't have the cross and the empty tomb. But post-resurrection, uh, uh, Jesus then sends us out because he is that king and he wants the nations as his inheritance. He said, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Now, just like in Psalm 2, the, the whole idea was that he wanted the nations to be the inheritance. Now God wants the nations to come and worship the King Jesus. Repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And God's concern is for the ends of the earth. It was his concern in Psalm 2. It is his concern today. I read a uh, quite a disturbing story last week in preparation for this sermon let me take you back. It was 1985. It was in New Orleans. It was a gathering at a swimming pool. In New Orleans, for the first year ever, in all of their swimming pools, there was no drowning in the swimming pool. So what they decided to do was they gathered together to celebrate that there'd be no drownings in any New Orleans pool. 200 people gathered. 100 certified lifeguards were at these events. As the party was breaking up, as they celebrated the great successes of that year, four lifeguards that were left on duty began to clear the pool. Everyone was getting out, getting changed, going home. Then they found a fully dressed body in the deep end of the pool. His name was Jeremy Moody, 31 years of age, fully dressed and dead. He had drowned, surrounded by lifeguards, celebrating their successful season. Devastating. And the person who wrote this story then went on to say, I wonder how many visitors and strangers among us are drowning in loneliness and hurt and doubt. And I add spiritual deadness. While we, who could help, didn't realize and we didn't do anything. He says, we Christians have reasons to celebrate. We celebrate the death and the resurrection of Jesus, the good news of forgiveness and peace with God and the, the promise of, of eternal life. But right next to us, are people who are dying, who are perishing. And he says, I quote an old hymn, Rescue the Perishing. And part of the role of those who are now part of God's, God's kingdom, this is you and me, is to get the word out to others, to see where the lost are, 
to understand them, to hear them, to listen to them, to go with a message of love to them, to go with a message of the gospel that they too would be saved. I wonder how many of us are celebrating, partying in groups and church services and outings and so on, and people all around us in our street, in our families, our mothers, our fathers, our brothers, our sisters, our uni friends, our school friends are dying and perishing without Christ. That's not to put any guilt on anyone. A part of our responsibility is to take the gospel to the nations. That's God's desire through our personal witness, through our youth ministry, our kids' ministries, our women's, our men's ministries, our uni's, uni ministries, our chaplains here, our evangelistic courses, reading the Bible with someone. You can just get together with someone and read, a, read the Bible or give a Bible or a book out. This morning, uh, it just came to my attention. One of the ladies came after the church service and said, you won't believe what happened to me. Uh, after Good Friday, I think Easter Sunday, we get handed out a book by Lee Strobel called uh, The Case for Easter. So she took a number of these books. She said, I was at a petrol station and this person reversed their car into me, smashed my car. And well, that's not good at a service station. And we went out and I go, oh, I'm so sorry. He's really apologetic and apologetic. And she was okay. I look at my car and he kept apologizing and we pushed the bumper bar back. It was okay. And I said, listen, hold on for a moment, she said. Ran back into a car, got out the case for, case for Easter, <laughs> police travel, said, what I'd like you to do, no problems, you're forgiven, I, I want to give you this gift. Why don't you take that home and read that? And please, promise me that you'll read this book. She's a great evangelist, passionate evangelist, this lady in her 70s probably. Giving away the word, helping people to discover Christ in any way you can. Friends, there'll be people maybe listening tonight on live stream, we got more email from different people saying, hey, I was listening in, I hadn't thought about Jesus before, but that was really compelling. Uh, maybe I need to know more about Jesus and his resurrection. And our missionaries, the Sleemans in Lebanon, the Nicholsons in Central Asia, Ado and Claire in Southeast Asia, Jasmine in Thailand. And next week, we kick off our main mission appeal. $75,000 we want to raise for about 10 projects. Workers in, uh, in Africa, in Middle East, in Southeast Asia, Central Asia, um, and other places of the world. So we want to be praying that God would use these workers to see more people come into his kingdom, people who are drowning, be saved. But also, uh, Graham Dunkley, who preached a couple of weeks ago, part of our church, he said, Ange, I wonder whether we can have another goal this, uh, this year, May Mission. Instead of just raising money for workers, why, why don't we pray about a goal of raising up 10 people who would start exploring and considering the possibility of overseas mission? Why don't we pray instead of, let's raise $75,000. In one sense, that's sort of, I careful how I say it, sort of easy to raise money. I can write a $500 check. There you go, take it, or $1,000 or $20 or whatever you can afford, and we can raise that money. But it's another step to say, who is it amongst us that God may be calling to give their lives in overseas mission to see the nations come to Christ. And we'll tell you more about what we're seeking to do about that during the month of May. Because, friends, there will be a final judgment. It says, you will break or rule them with a rod of iron. You'll dash them to pieces like pottery. It says to the king, the king will win the battle. The enemies will not win. God will win. My friends, we also look to the future. Because in one sense... The Davidic kings never really reigned in that powerful way. Didn't have that power. And once someone says, well, even Jesus doesn't rule like that. People reject him, do whatever they like. So when's this going to take place? As I said earlier, Jesus came in two comings. The first coming, die and be raised again. He's coming back a second time to complete the job. 
And from this perspective, the kingship of Jesus is established. The climax of Jesus' dominion is a future reality. The consummation, the perfection of the kingdom has not yet taken place, but it's coming. And the language of Psalm 2, you'll find that in the book of Revelation everywhere. Multiple passages, five or six passages in Revelation. Revelation 2.27 says that a victorious Christian will reign with Christ and will rule over the nations. We as Christians will reign with Christ over the nations. Revelation 12.5 and 19.15 apply it to Christ coming in his final judgments. Listen to this. Coming out of his mouth is the sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. You recognize that language. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Jesus is coming. People are drowning. People are dying without Jesus. They are lost throughout the nations of the earth. And Christ is coming in his ultimate judgment. He will come a second time to bring in his kingdom. So what should we do? Verse 212 says, well, submit to the king. That's the only smart thing to do. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss his son or he'll be angry and your way will lead to your destruction. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are those who take refuge in him. If God is king and he's made salvation possible and you keep rebelling against him, he said, you've got to think again. Be wise. Think it through. Do you really want to live in opposition to God the rest of your life? Do you want to go to judgment day unforgiven? Do you want to face God on that final day and say, well, I didn't think I should follow you, Jesus. I chose to go it my own way. Do you really want to do that? Because it will lead to your destruction. Kiss the sun. It's a, it's, a, it's a sign of homage and submission to the king. Rather than rebelling against him, you kiss him, you embrace him, you come close to him. I love that last bit. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Don't take refuge in your, your machinations there, all your friends trying to rebel against the king. No, no. Take your refuge, find your safety in him. Friends, grace breaks through completely in that final line. The people find their security and blessing in relationship with God and his king. And a call for us today, and today, by the way, is Greek Orthodox Easter as well, and uh, the Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox Church are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus, is to remember that the one who rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, is ruling over all, Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and he's coming back to bring judgment and salvation to those who are waiting for him. It is my prayer that we will play our part in seeing more and more people come to know him, to trust him, and to kiss the Son. Let me pray. Lord God, thank you that uh, you make possible our salvation by your grace. You have established your King, Jesus, your Son, our Saviour, as Lord over all. We ask that we will trust your plans, your purposes, your ruling in the world, even when we don't understand what is happening, to trust that you are quietly working out your purposes according to your will and for the glory of your name and the good of your people. Lord, we thank you that it's all made possible through the sacrificial death of Christ. For that we are truly thankful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.